You're listening to Blackbird Nine's Breakfast Club. I'm your host, Frederick C. Blackburn. And tonight's episode is episode 89, The Somber Odyssey into 9-11 Truth. Kind of a follow-up to last week's show where we talked about the run-up from the top. You know, how did 9-11 happen? Why did it happen? And we talked about it being a crime. And any crime, you always ask, you know, who has the motive, who had the means, who had the opportunity, and key bono, who benefits? This week, what I want to do is look at the last 16 years and the rise of the 9-11 truth movement. So when we... Look at 9-11. And like I said, last week's show was all about the crime. Well, if you want to do the perfect crime, you have to be able to address that who's ever going to investigate it are going to be asking who has the motive, who has the means, who has the opportunity, and who benefits. So to carry out the perfect crime, you have to have control of the crime scene, and the investigation yourself so that you can be the one to answer those questions. And so despite all the physical evidence, we were told this all had to do with radical Islam and Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda. And then suddenly, magically, al-Qaeda was in league with Saddam Hussein in Iraq, and nothing could be further from the truth. And that Saddam Hussein was uh, seeking weapons of mass destruction. Nothing can be further from the truth. But if you're the one doing the investigation and taking control of the crime scene, you can make whatever assertions you want. So that's what we saw on 9-11 was that the people who committed the crime were the ones who took control of the crime scene and the investigation and were in charge of the response to 9-11, which had been already preordained well in advance. And that's what everybody needs to understand. The plans for invading Afghanistan were on the table long before 9-11, the Like we talked about last week, the Odin Yenin plan for greater Israel, that was all designed well in advance. The problem is that even the most perfect crime, the criminal always makes a mistake. And it's that mistake which is always their undoing. Now, in my study of who I think were some of the main masterminds of this, meaning Benjamin Netanyahu, Ariel Sharon, Ehud Barak, Shimon Perez, and uh, especially the game theorist Dr. Robert J. Almond. To me, those are some of the main people that were part of the Israeli side think tank of planning. Then you had the Richard Pearls, the Paul Wolfowitz, the you know, uh, Douglas Fifes, you know, the Scooter Libbies, you know, all those PNAC neocons, you know, in place. You also had your uh, David Axelrod, your Rahm Emanuel's, and the Democratic side, the so-called New Left. You know, so you have all your people in place. But the main think tank, you know, when you think about it, you know, they were of a demographic where they knew they had to take control of the newspapers, which they did. They knew they had to take control of 
the television stations and the radio stations, which they did, used to, we had rules in the United States of how many radio stations and television stations an individual or a group could own. It was known as the 777 rule. That was dismantled under the Clinton administration. So now, basically, as we went into 9-11, six corporations owned about 98% of the media in the U.S. So they knew they had to take care of that. They knew they had to take control of the courts. So all of that maneuvering pre-9-11 was to stack the courts. They knew they had to uh, have their puppets in place. You know, all these things that they knew about. Well, my hypothesis has long been that because of the age of these individuals, they grew up with radio and television, but were clueless when it came to the new media of the Internet. And the Internet was the wild card that I feel that they did not plan on in any other planning. And the way we designed the Internet made it basically impossible for them to take full control of. They're trying desperately. They've been trying desperately. But to me, that was the Achilles heel of this entire operation. And that has been their undoing is they could not control the stage. You know, information was getting out, even though they controlled all the so-called official channels, television, radio, and newspapers, the old information, they did not control the new. And so when we go back to the Bolshevik model of how to subvert a nation, always remember the four stages of subverting a nation is demoralization, destabilization, crisis, and normalization, the new normal. You know, you're normalizing the abnormal. And the people growing up in that, since that's all they've known, they don't know anything different. So that becomes the new normal. So again, demoralization, destabilization, crisis, and normalization. Those were played out to a T in 9-11 that... You know, the idea of the best military in the world could be outsmarted by 19 Arabs with box cutters being organized by a guy in a cave in Afghanistan with a laptop computer was completely demoralizing that, you know, they were able to hit, you know, uh, three of their four targets. Well, you know, you got a complete stand down, you know, and uh, General Franks got the Medal of Honor, and the man never fired a shot, even against the Pentagon. The Pentagon is one of the most heavily armed and video-surveyed electronic surveillance places on the planet. And, you know, not a shot was fired. Okay, so always remember that, that everybody completely stood down. So that was that demoralization. Now, one of the thing now remember you know i was still employed and you know working with all these organizations i was working with the teleco companies you know the AT&Ts i was working with companies like cisco i was working with ericsson and motorola i was also working with the NSA and training them. I was working with the CIA. I was working with the FBI. I was working with state governments, SBI, you know, State Bureau of Investigations. I was working with military intelligence, naval intelligence, you know, et cetera. And one of the things after 9-11, before I got blacklisted, was 
there was a thread that has since disappeared, and I cannot find any sources about this, but it was pretty much standard knowledge in some circles that on 9-11 that the nuclear arsenal in the United States was activated, and it was basically a stand-down or we issue launch codes type gangster gun to the head type situation. Now, when you look at who ran the security for all the airports, it was all Israeli companies. But also remember that it's Israelis companies that are uh, that manage most of the security on U.S. military bases that have nuclear weapons. And so I always thought that was very interesting that that piece of 9-11 truth has completely disappeared to the best of my knowledge. I don't ever hear anybody talking about that anymore. But that was one of the things that when a lot of my students, you know, uh, one of the things I'd always do the last week of class was take the students out on the last night for dinner and everything and drinks. And you'd usually have, you know, one or two students that would hang behind that wanted to talk about stuff. And so I certainly became like father confessor to a lot of these young military types, especially that were talking about things. And that was one of the things that I would hear. And so you don't hear that anymore. So I think that was very interesting. But this idea that you know you could demoralize a country with an event like 9/11, and then completely destabilize it, and then you know that that crisis mode of well, what do we do? What do we do? How do we move forward? Well, we just happen to have the solution. This is problem, reaction, solution, and you get things like the Patriot Act, the Department of Homeland Security. The TSA, Transportation Security Agency, all these new neo-Stasi organizations that, you know, suddenly were the umbrella of power that are going to uh, give the solution. But that's going to become the new normal. And people like Ehud Barak and Jerome Howard and Benjamin Netanyahu were talking about this on 9-11 before even the towers fell, that we're entering into a new era of this war on terror and things are never going to be the same as they were. So that, you know, this was part of the agenda of that four stages of subverting a nation. Now, the other thing to always remember is the Overton window. And remember the steps of the Overton window of perception that you have things that are just unthinkable. And then things that are radical, things that are acceptable, things that are sensible, things that are popular, and things that are policy. And when you do trauma-based programming on a population and get them in that fear state, it's like a hypnotic state where it's singular logic, and you give them the official story of your criminal investigation, you've already named the culprit before the towers even hit, and you've given the solution that we've got to go attack here, here, and here, then that becomes policy. And anything contrary to that, like maybe it wasn't Osama bin Laden, maybe it was the Israelis that were arrested leading up to 9-11, that were arrested on 9-11, and the ones that were arrested right after 9-11, 
you think about it, you know, after 9-11, over 200 Israelis had been arrested, and they were the only ones arrested that day. You didn't have any other groups being arrested in mass like you had Israelis. So you had over 200 Israelis, but if you said maybe it was Israel that did it, that was unthinkable, you know. And that was what those of us that were early to the movement quickly understood that these people don't want to hear facts and figures and data. They already know the answer, and it's emotionally bonded. And that has kept this policy in play for these 16 years, but you can't sustain a fear state. And that's one of the problems with trauma-based programming is eventually the people will start questioning. There will be something that just doesn't seem right, and once you find one thread, it's like pulling threads on a sweater. You start pulling it, and the whole thing starts unraveling. And that was the role of the Internet with the new 9-11 truth movement. And so I always go back to the saying by the Buddha that three things cannot long be hidden. Three things cannot long be hidden, the sun, the moon, and the truth. And you think about it, you have a few cloudy days, but eventually you're going to see the sun, you're eventually going to see the moon, you know, the hurricane will eventually pass and you'll see the stars again, and the truth, the truth will finally come out. And so with 9-11 truth, for me, I was watching like everybody else because a friend had called me and said, did you see what just happened? And I, of course, tuned in and you know, stayed glued to the set all day. And I was on the Internet um, at the time. And it was like, you know, at, I guess, you know, with my background working for like research facilities and things like that, with the original ARPNET and the uh, different systems we had for connecting government agencies and uh, universities and research facilities, uh, and that developed into the Internet. So I had been on uh, this type of media platforms since they became media platforms. And so I was not only watching the TV, the broadcast, but I was, you know, with people online in those early days of like Yahoo groups and bulletin boards uh, posting things that, you know, didn't seem right or people were questioning, you know, and speculating. And then when the towers collapsed in free fall, it's like, you know, that physically can't happen. You know, I was one of those geeky kids who, when they were building the World Trade Centers, you know, was just amazed that they were designed to specs that, you know, if a plane hits it, it's going to do less damage than when that plane hit the Empire State Building at that time, you know, once upon a time. And, you know, that uh, the steel structures could withstand all of this stress, et cetera. And to see that collapse into dust, as we say here in North Kakalaki, you go, oh, hell no, Right. And then when they started teach, uh, doing this thing about the cell phone calls, it was the double, oh, hell no, that's fair. <laughs> no, no, no. They just jumped the shark with the cell phone calls. And trying to explain that, and what was terrifying to me is when I was 
teaching my classes, and my classes were all about migrating the existing uh, telephone networks with the new computer networks, and this was what became 3G communications, this merged communication. And so if anybody on the planet knew how cell phones operated with the signaling and the uh, limits, it was my students. But yet the Overton window had them mumped. So when I'm sitting there, you know, talking about how with 3G communications, how are we going to get these cell phone towers to hand off the phone call and not drop it if if you're in a moving vehicle? Because, you know, if you remember early cell phone calls, that was a problem. As long as you stayed put with one cell phone tower, you could hold the call up. But if you were in a car, uh, chances were you would have to drop the call and then reestablish the call with the next cell phone tower. And, you know, that has since been, you know, corrected with, you know, 4G technology. But, you know, that early cell phone technology, uh, you know, that was the call. And, you know, the limit of distance, you know, you just could not have a plane at that altitude connecting to a cell phone tower. Plus, cell phone towers were designed to go out, not up. So, you know, it was those things where it's like this physically can't happen. But yet people are telling me and marketing to me that this is the reality. And so that's why I always go back to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes character in the book The Sign of the Four, where he says, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And... That was where we started. It's like, well, that's physically impossible, so what else is happening? And that's when um, you started looking if you were a person that didn't believe. Now, if you were a person that bought it, then everything was just about reinforcing that same narrative, and you had the blinders on to anybody who tried to persuade you otherwise. And like George Bush said, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. And so it became the unpatriotic thing to question 9-11. People uh, would do things like poison your animals and make death threats on you, etc., which is what happened to me. They tried to plant drugs on me. Um, You know, just, you know, that was the reality we're dealing with. But... I think one of the biggest keys of to, well, if they didn't do it, then who did, came from the very rare Fox News report. It was a four-part series done by Carl Cameron, and it was, remember, September 11th, 2001. Well, this aired December 12th, so just a couple of months after this. Fox News actually did a four-part series about Israeli spying, and one of the quotes was, and this is from a U.S. official uh, talking to Carl Cameron, evidence linking these Israelis to 9-11 is classified. I cannot tell you about evidence that has been gathered. It's classified information. So suddenly all of these things dealing with the Israelis being arrested with bombs on the George Washington Bridge, truck bombs, um, that was all suddenly classified. You couldn't ask that. And we now know that Michael Chertoff 
quietly deported all those Israelis back to Israel on immigration charges. And so they never stood trial for terrorism like they should have. And that also is part of that demoralization thing where the police that, you know, arrested these people and such that said, you know, no, we caught them red-handed and to see them released because some authority figure said, well, that's not the way we're doing it. That was also demoralizing to our law enforcement and our intelligence agencies, because despite what people think, you know, we do have lots of really good people in law enforcement and intelligence agency that are trying to enforce the rule of law. They haven't all been corrupted, but they were the ones that were targeted and shut up. Now, the other aspect of this, especially for those not familiar with, you know, U.S. history, is how well the 9-11 attacks and everything since has followed the psychological research that was done in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And when you look back after World War II, remember, you know, in our model, the Jews took out the Russians first, the Armenians, the Ukrainians, then they went after the Germans, then they went after the United States. And... So after World War II in 1946, the National Mental Health Act was signed. In 1949, the National Institute of Mental Health was established, and it was nothing but Jewish scientists and psychologists that were well-versed in the Frankfurt School uh, in Freudian theory. And four people in particular, we've talked about this in previous shows, but Learned Helplessness Theory by Martin Seligman, authority, uh, you know, obeying authority in Stanley Milgram's experiments, group conformity, Solomon Ash, and the Stanford Prison Experiments by Philip Zimbardo. Those four studies really fit how they handled us and manipulated us after 9-11 with, you know, this, you know, what authority says to do it, you have to do it, or else, you know, we'll come after you. Learned helplessness theory. I think so much of the TSA with the uh, airport security and the frisking, and uh, that just how, you know, humiliating that is to see, you know, your wife or your daughter being groped by these TSA goons and you can't do anything about it. Uh, and the group conformity that everybody's Overton window is here, so you're going to be, you know, shunned and outcast. Uh, lose your job, lose your career, lose your marriage, lose your home, you know, lose your business if you don't conform. Uh, and then the Stanford Prison experiments of pulling out that sadistic nature of people and telling them it's justified to behave in these unacceptable what would be normally unacceptable ways and it's like how they manipulated those young men and women to carry out the israeli torture programs for example uh that you know broke later on the you know us always saying oh we don't torture we don't torture it's like yes we had black sites all over the place we were torturing these people into confessing to keep the narrative going uh so you know those big studies now when we look at what happened afterwards, after 9-11, we kind of see two 
threats. One had to do with the illegal electronic telecommunications spying that led to the NSA, which led to people like Booz Allen Hamilton, Rancorp, uh, MITRE, General Dynamics, you know, those type of companies, but also that, and this was what I was trying to prove when I got blacklisted, that there was a pipe behind the NSA back doors that went straight to Israel. And that's what I was trying to prove, and I couldn't do it, but Mr. Edward Snowden uh, revealed that in 2013, that yes, there was indeed a pipe all the way to Israel behind the NSA, behind all the compromised information telecommunication grid, and that was due to what we talked about, the Kalia uh, Act, of not, uh, you know, the Kalia Communication Assistant for Law Enforcement Act. So when we look at you know that threat, you know, it's like, okay, communication, everything, but then you have this other thing with the actual event of how did nine if it didn't happen the way they said it did, what really happened? Uh, if you didn't accept the 19 hijackers with box cutters and planes theory, what what other thing could explain this? So when we break these down, uh, basically the NSA from day one is all about spying on any type of electronic communications. So uh, an earlier program was called Echelon, and that was all about spying on international communications and especially satellite communications. And so if you're ever outside of D.C. and you see those huge antenna, those big dishes outside of D.C. on uh, the interstate, you know that's part of the Echelon program where they were spying on satellites. And so basically what we were doing at the NSA was learning how to do the surveillance on these new next generation phone calls that were, you know, part computer and part telephone, just like with the Echelon program. Now, the problem is NSA was never supposed to do anything on U.S. soil, and that's what the church committee uh, hearings were all about, that the NSA was always supposed to be offshore. Well, one of the things was the NSA was doing blanket surveillance on everybody in the U.S. One of the first person to blow the whistle on this was William Benny, and this was the uh, Trailblazer program. And Trailblazer was one of those programs where it was pulling up everything and trying to use predictive programming to stop crimes before they happen type of thing. So you're eliminating potential enemies. And this goes back to that, the best of the goyim must die. You know, any leader out there who you think might be a threat to you and your agenda, you want to preemptively take them out. And so that was what Trailblazer was. Then in 2003, the Total Information Awareness and the Information Awareness Office were defunded because they were violating the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. And again, these went back to Rand Corp and Booz Allen Hamilton. Then 2002, Sabelle Edmonds was gagged by the state secrets privilege because she was an FBI interpreter and was trying to 
talk about things that she had seen that had been covered up. And she was gagged under the State Secrets Privilege Act. So basically the government says we were doing clandestine things for national security and you're not allowed to talk about it. Then Thomas Drake blew the whistle on Trailblazer. It was after uh, Thomas Drake that the NSA had to kind of go into damage control mode. And that's when they trotted General Michael Hayden out. Uh, and he did that infamous Fourth Amendment where he tried to juice-splain or shabbat goy-splain the Fourth Amendment as being a reasonable standard. It's a you know, standard of reasonableness versus, you know, you have to have a warrant based on affirmation of what's there. And he was trying to say, no, 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 we're allowed to, you know, spy on you. It's a reasonable standard. And uh, I put that, that was like the main video in this week's playlist. And that was what I was seeing at the NSA, where all these young analysts, I always worked with the analysts at these agencies, where they got confused when I was talking about the game rules of when they could use this type of surveillance because their management was telling them that as NSA, they're allowed to spy on anyone anywhere on the planet. What the Fourth Amendment meant was they just can't use what they find in a court of law, but that's not the objective because what the NSA is then doing is providing the military with basically kill lists. And, you know, General Hayden talks about this in several interviews that they kill people for metadata. And that was the thing is, you know, we have used this predictive policing tactics based on game theory uh, to set up this, you know, basically hit teams type strategy. And so they were being told by their superiors, their authority figures that, you know, what they're doing was fine. And I was causing them to be very confused by saying what the actual communication laws were. And I was finally told uh, to stop, to drop my module on communication law for my NSA classes. And then finally, I was just completely blacklisted. But, you know, I was like, well, this is the law. You know, this you have to follow. You, know, you may be the NSA, but on U.S. soil, this is the law. And I haven't seen that changed yet. And I was told I had to remove that because it was confusing the students. So, yeah, that kind of tells you where they were going with that. Then Thomas Tam revealed Stellar Wynn to the New York Times in 2008. Now, Stellar Wynn was just another bigger program where basically it was sweeping up everything. It was like the vacuum cleaner of all phone calls, all emails, all texts, etc., and setting up profiles to bubble up targets of interest, TIs. And he revealed that in 2008 uh, to the New York Times. Then, of course, in 2010, Bradley Manning uh, this is where they introduced WikiLeaks, and he was uh, then court-martialed in 2013, and then this was commuted, and he was finally released in May of 2017. And, of course, you know, now we know Bradley Manning as Chelsea Manning, and that's one of those organic synthetic things of he became the instant darling of the peace movement, you know, on the left, the traditional, you know, leftist peace movement types, you know, that was, oh, he's so brave. And then 
when he suddenly became transgender made it even better. So this was suddenly this icon of the transgender movement of this brave American soldier who risked it all to tell the truth. But it was WikiLeaks and that's Julian Assange. And one of the things about WikiLeaks is they never say anything derogatory about Israel or the Mossad or anything like that. So it's very selective. I've never seen any uh, WikiLeaks tell me anything about Israel I didn't already know. So I always thought that was a very interesting development there. Then, of course, in 2013, uh, oh, excuse me, in 2006 was when Julian Assange emerged on the scene with WikiLeaks.org. And that was registered on the 4th of October in 2006. So, you know, these were some of the people that were coming forward and blowing the whistle on these programs. Now, what's interesting to me there is I was writing letters. I was making phone calls. I was trying to meet with my you know, elected officials and I couldn't get a word in edgewise. If I, if a newspaper would publish my letters to the editor, they would edit it to make me look ridiculous, uh, which was a known tactic at the time. So finally, a lot of us just stopped writing letters to the editor because we knew we were doing more harm than good. You know, like I said, I just couldn't break the noise floor of trying to get the information out. And so that brings in the next part of this is having the information about what's going on and trying to find a receptive audience that would listen to you. Because, again, you're dealing with their cognitive dissonance of their Everton window. And, you know, how do you find people to give the information with us? You know, the old you know, pearls before swine kind of thing. And so with me, I then left the traditional Jewish media and went to the new media, and I would post on uh, bulletin boards, I would post in comment sections, a lot of times until I got banned. For example, I got banned at CNN, I got banned at Veterans for Now, I got banned at Boiling Frogs. You know, nobody could ever dispute what I said. No one would ever give me an example, especially CNN, of what community standard I had violated and what particular post was in question. It was just, you know, suddenly you just couldn't go on anymore. So that was the problem of trying to find other people, which prior to the Internet, I would have been stuck. I would have been completely isolated because all the traditional media was still pushing the official story and I had no voice. The fairness doctrine was gone. I had no platform, so I would have just had to sit in my silence while everyone laughed at me or threw rotten tomatoes at me or whatever. But with the new Internet, you know, suddenly you could find kindred spirits, even if they were in a different country. And that was what I was basically finding is building alliances and sharing information with people all over the world. You know, when we start looking at that and you know, we go through the events you know, after 9-11, you know, immediately on October seventh uh, of two thousand one, Operation Enduring Freedom was launched, and the U.S. invaded and attacked Afghanistan. Then, two thousand one, October eighth, Tom Ridge takes command of the new Department of Homeland Security. And when you look at how the Patriot Act was designed, 
and the DHS, Department of Homeland Security, and TSA, then you see that it was people like Michael Chertoff and Marcus Wolf. And Marcus Wolf was the head of the East German Stasi, and he was brought in as a consultant, he was also a Jew, to Jew Michael Chertoff to design this neo-Stasi Department of Homeland Security for the United States, which was a complete power grab. Suddenly, they were this umbrella organization, and everybody reported to them instead of the old checks and balance systems of the Constitutional Republic. You know, you didn't have your intelligence committees, et cetera, oversight. You now had everybody reporting to Department of Homeland Security. Then October 26 of 2001, the Patriot Act was signed. And again, nobody was even allowed to read it. It was written well in advance. It was very involved. Parts of it, you know, remain classified. Then 2002, FEMA released its World Trade Center Building Performance Study. And that was one of the first totally bogus pieces of, you know, reporting that people started saying, well, that's not the way it happened, but that's what the report said. So the FEMA study was the first of a long line of bogus official reports that would try to keep with the official narrative that had nothing to do with facts and science and reality. And this gets into that Jewish mindset of pill-pull, where it's basically the truth is whatever we say it is, whatever we need it to be at the time. And in 15 minutes from now, if we need it to be something different, that's what we'll go with then. But for now, this is the truth, because these cultural Marxists, remember, God is dead, and there's no such thing as objective truth anymore. And that is right out of the Marxist uh, mindset of, you know, basically truth is whatever you need it to be. Then on November 19th of 2001, the uh, Transportation Security, or TSA, was formed. And that was one of the most horrific things that ever happened to the United States, in my opinion, because I used to love flying and going to the airports, and you go meet people at the airports, or you take people to the airports, and that used to be such a fun thing. And now going to the airport is just completely dehumanizing. But what's so bad is the way people have accepted it as the new normal, that these young women have no problems lining up and being groped by these security agents Uh, and going through these probably, you know, Michael Chertoff's cancer-causing porn screens. Uh, that are totally ineffective at actually finding anything, but it's dehumanizing. Now, in 2004, Dr. David Ray Griffin, I think, probably launched the first shot heard around the world when he released his book, The New Pearl Harbor, Disturbing Questions About the Bush Administration and 9-11. So here you had this kindly, old, philosophy, religious professor writing a book, and no one could dispute what he was saying. His research was impeccable, the questions he was asking, the facts he was bringing up, and that really shattered the official uh, narrative. And I would think that that may have been, I guess people would argue about what really started the truth movement, but I think that was probably in the top ten events of what we could point to for the 9-11 truth movement was that book. Because, you know, everybody 
that was like me immediately went out and bought it and said exactly this is what I've been saying and you would you know uh, type in pieces and you'd send them off and you know the different parts of the story that didn't start adding up and suddenly you had this civilian citizens forensic team out there on the internet putting the crime scene together it's like we're going to do a different different criminal investigation this is you know the court of popular opinion and so that really started the uh, ball rolling now immediately you could see the uh, zionists going into damage control now you remember you had the uh, 9-11 commission was established on november 27th 2002 and they were slated to release their findings on the 22nd again you got that 22 in there on july 22nd 2004 it's very, very telling that a month before, or technically two months before, Michael Moore released his film, Fahrenheit 9-11. It was originally on the 17th of May in, at the Cannes uh, Film Festival, and then released in the U.S. on June 25th. Now, Michael Moore's agent is Rahm Emanuel's brother, Ari Emanuel, and the backers of this film were none other than Bob and Harvey Weinstein, the Weinstein brothers. And so he puts that movie out a month before the 9-11 Commission Report comes out. And just like the 9-11 Commission Report, no Jews were harmed during the making of this film or this report. They weren't even mentioned. Now, he's one of those that went after Bush, Cheney, Condoleezza Rice, Donald Rumsfeld, you know, all those evil people, and made the case that it was all about oil and greed, but never once mentioned anything about any Israelis. Same thing with the 9-11 Commission Report. They don't talk about any of the 200 Israelis arrested, They don't talk about the truck bombs on the George Washington Bridge. They don't talk about the uh, explosives found in buildings or the explosions. They don't even mention World Trade Center 7 in this report, but that was slated to be the final report of the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States. The final report. Like, okay, this is just like the Warren Commission. Our experts have deemed this the final report. And, of course, that was the executive director was Jew supremacist and Zionist Philip Zalikal. Then in 2005, the National Institute for Science and Technology, or NIST, releases their report uh, on the September 11th. And just like the 9-11 Commission report, it was full of holes and bad science. Then in uh, February of 2005, Popular Mechanics, of all places, releases a special report on debunking 9-11 myths. So here the Jews are going after people like Dr. David Griffin and the rest of us, pointing out these facts and trying to say, oh, well, you're you know, not looking at it right. And this was headed up by none other than Benjamin Chertoff, who was the cousin of Michael Chertoff. Then 2005... Dr. Stephen Jones releases a paper, and he was a professor at Brigham Young University, 
And his paper was, Why Indeed Did the World Trade Center Buildings Completely Collapse? That paper was a huge death knell to the official story because it confirmed the use of high-tech nano-explosives, especially uh, nanothermite and nanothermate, and that that was peer-reviewed and nobody could touch it. So basically they just had to do a smear campaign against Stephen, Dr. Stephen Jones and tried to make him look like a tinfoil kook, you know, tinfoil hat kook and conspiracy theories, etc. But, you know, they really went after him. But that report still stands to this day as one of the first major proofs that uh, explosives were indeed used on September 11th. Then in February of 2006, John Hagee revived the defunct organization renowned as Christians United for Israel, or KUFI, and that was created by a guy named David Lewis in 1992, but had long since, uh, nobody was interested, and it just kind of fell apart. Well, Ehud Barak's cousin, David Brogue, who was the executive director, he was the one with John Hagee that revived it. And basically, David Brogue, who's a Jewish supremacist, is the handler of John Hagee, and just they pump millions of dollars into this Christians United for Israel. And suddenly he was on all the talk shows you know, pushing the official 9-11 story and that we have to stand with our ally Israel against Islamic terror. And that was his big push, and he would go to all these Protestant churches especially, pushing this agenda. So, you know, that was in 2006. You could see they're now going into damage control mode. In 2006, Mr. Richard Gage forms architects and engineers for 9-11 truth and i was one of the first people to sign on to that as soon as even though i'm not that kind of engineer (laughs) i signed the other petition but uh there were like two petitions one was for actual license like uh architects and engineers structural engineers and then there was like the support list so i was on the support list but totally agreed with everything they were doing and their whole point was to just establish the science of 9-11 and then do an investigation of who did it. They were not, you know, that was part of the charter. We were not from day one going to try to figure out who did it. It was just to try to show how it happened and the physics of the explosions. Also in 2006, Pilots for 9-11 Truth was founded because if you talk to a pilot and I've talked to many military pilots and commercial pilots since 9-11, and every one of them, off the record, will say it's physically impossible. Trajectories, especially at the what supposedly happened at the Pentagon, with that particular plane, with those conditions, it couldn't be done. Pilots for 9-11 Truth was a huge push to say, you know, the pilots don't agree with the official story of missed one here after stephen jones released his paper uh we saw a film emerge in 2005 called loose change and that was released by mr dylan avery and that went through several different editions or yeah yeah different editions i guess and it was called you know loose change 9-11 and american coup but again like michael moore it's conspicuous by what is not mentioned, the facts that were omitted from this film. In 
2000. Oh, another angle of this that remember the Jews are trying to destroy Western civilization and genocide white people and create this white hating, self loathing race. And it was in 2006 when Al Gore and Davis Guggenheim released their film, An Inconvenient Truth, that went viral through the so-called left, that suddenly everybody had this, you know, we're all going to die from man-made global warming and uh, only a global government that's using carbon credits and penalizing Western cultures, uh, uh, yeah, Western countries is going to save us. And of course, it's going to be Jews that are going to handle this, you know, carbon credit racket. And all the white industrial countries are going to have to pay for it. So it's just another way of pulling the wealth out of white nations to cripple them. So that hit in 2006. And even though that wasn't technically part of the 9-11 truth movement development, it was very significant as part of that overall demoralization program of Western nations. Um, because people really fell for it. And, uh, you know, during the hurricanes this week, I was not surprised that the Jewish media was still playing man-made global warming was the cause of these bad hurricanes. We need to, you know, penalize Western countries and cut down these carbon emissions or, you know, we're all going to die. You know, that kind of mentality. Then, um, in 2008, NIST releases the final report on WTC7, and that was just a joke. Uh, instead of using any real science, they did cartoon animations, just like those so-called caves, those uh, weaponized caves that Osama bin Laden supposedly had uh, all over Afghanistan, that they never found one, just like all those mobile weapon labs, they never found one, but they had nice cartoon images of them. Well, the same thing was with the NIST reports on WTC7. They just basically made this cartoon to show this building collapsed because of a buckled column and everything else just fell in on itself, and then classified the, you know, uh, computer program of how they derived at the animation. It's like, well, you just have to accept that the cartoon is how it happened. And so that just really made a mockery out of NIST uh, that, you know, I think NIST lost all credibility at that point. And then in 2008, right after the NIST report, architects and engineers released 9-11 Blueprint for Truth. And that in the science community, anybody that would, you know, that was receptive felt that that was a definitive turning point in the 9-11 truth movement because the arguments posed in that you couldn't, anybody who was actually playing by the game rules of physics and science couldn't refute what was saying. Now, the people over here in the Jews, you know, they whatever they need to say to argue and try to push you down, they're going to do it. And usually they'd go after ad hominem attack type tactics to demonize the people that were putting this information out. Then in 2008, uh, retired Seattle firefighter Eric Lauer, or Lawyer, uh, founds firefighters for 9-11 Truth. So now you've got architects and engineers, you've got pilots, and now firefighters for 9-11 Truth. 
Then in 2008, August 18th, Missing Links, The Definitive Truth About 9-11 was released online. And that was one of the first films to really say, it's the Jews. You know, here is the agenda. This is how they did it. But, you know, the first ones to actually talk about the JQ and a 9-11 major release that was very well received. A lot of people... You know, that was one of the ones for me, for example, that hit the cognitive dissonance because I still had the Anne Frank goggles on about my Holocaust programming. And so it was about that time that Sylvia uh, Stoles was being put in prison for defending Ernst Zundel. And that really pushed my button on, you know, truth needs no law to protect it. If they're throwing a lawyer in jail just for defending somebody there's something wrong and that's when i went and discovered all the you know denier bud holocaust films the david cole films and really started addressing that cognitive dissonance of the holocaust so that i could go through with the jq question on it was israel and the Mossad and these traitor jews in the united states that pulled this off and so a lot of people you know that was the sticking point is you know you're scared to death to be called an anti-Semite on a forum because you'd be banned immediately. But, you know, when all roads lead to Israel, all roads lead to Israel. Then in 2009, on February 12th, and again, you know, this is after Obama has taken office and we all had that hope and change that the first thing he would do once he got in office was go round all these people up and we would have some trials uh, for this treason. But instead, it was business as usual. And uh, Beverly Eckert from 9-11 Family Steering Committee, she was one of the people who was demanding the 9-11 investigation to begin with and then was totally disgusted with the sham job that they did because her husband died on 9-11. And so she couldn't be bought off. She wouldn't take the deal from you know, the Jewish uh, power brokers that were trying to make everybody who was questioning 9-11 take money and sign a non-disclosure agreement that they would never, ever bring up 9-11 truth again. She refused to do it and even met with Obama and Rahm Emanuel a week uh, before she died in a mysterious plane crash. And if you want to do some good research, look into that plane crash and tell me if it was organic or synthetic, because she was really putting the pressure on the new Obama administration to do something, and she couldn't be bought off and she couldn't be threatened. So like we always say, the five Bs, you bully, you bribe, you blackmail, you banish, and you bury. And so I think that they buried her because she couldn't be bought, and she couldn't be backed down, and she had a huge uh, support system. Uh, everybody loved her. I loved her. I cried when she passed. That was, oh, that was horrible. And then an interesting thing happened in September of 2009, where suddenly 9-11 Truth was entering into the Jewish media, but it was being presented by Charlie Sheehan and Rosie O'Donnell and Alex Jones. And so you had these three on all the talk show circuits, you know, talking the facts, but really discrediting the movement at the same time. And so it's like, was this a way to what we call poison the well? 
you know, or was Charlie Sheehan really trying to, and Rosie O'Donnell really trying to put the information out there, or were they, you know, set up to put it out there to make the truth movement look bad because they completely went after Charlie Sheehan and demonized him, and that was kind of the end of it. But he, um, in September, uh, he did a message that he put out on the Internet called A Message to Obama to ask him to investigate 9-11, and then, of course, went on the talk show circuit, et cetera. But the way that all blew up, you know, you kind of wonder if they were doing damage control trying to uh, sabotage the 9-11 truth movement. Then in 2011, AE, the Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth release, 9-11 explosive evidence experts speak out, and that completely blew away all the NIST findings, the 9-11 Commission report, uh, incredible documentary, and it also, at the end, has a segment on cognitive dissonance, why people just would not accept this, these facts because of the cognitive dissonance, because they had been trauma programmed so effectively by the event itself and the way the Jewish media just kept repeating it over and over, and at the same time, you know, removing any bits of the official story that pointed to anything but, you know, Osama bin Laden and the impossible story of the hijackers. In 2011, uh, December, Mr. Ryan Dawson releases 9-11 War by Deception, and even though that was a very low-budget production, it was incredibly well done, and his research was impeccable, where you know, it was just like graduate study 9-11 truth, where he had the all the FBI reports of, that had been you know, uh, uh, since declassified, uh, and was able to put together, you know, not only naming the Jews, but the individual Jews. He had everybody named from exact, uh, from the Dominic Suter's urban moving systems, who the actual dancing Israelis were, who was getting the uh, elevator permits, who was doing security in the buildings. I mean, everything, who the art students were that were planning the explosives. Uh, just an excellent job. But you know, like I said, it's a low budget film. But, you know, just a lot of really good data dots in that. And then in 2012, Christopher Bolin releases his book with a companion book of the original newspaper articles before he got run out of the country. He was writing for newspapers, and he was getting too close to the truth, and they basically sent the goon squad after him. And so he had to leave the country to get his family to safety. And in 2012... He wrote uh, Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World. And he, uh, like Mr. Dawson, just, you know, these are the Israelis involved. These are the companies. These are the uh, shadow companies, et cetera. And it's just an excellent book uh, full of just really solid, well-researched information. And then also in 2012, Sabelle Edmonds uh, released her book, Classified Woman, and then set up the Boiling Frog site and, you know, her so-called group for whistleblowers. So, you know, those were the basic, uh, I guess, you know, main events of the new 9-11 truth movement as I was experiencing. You know, just go back to the questions of, you know, who had the motive, who had the means, who had the opportunity, who benefited, and 
When you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And the truth is, Israel did 9-11 with their stateside accomplices for the greater Israel agenda. And they need to be held accountable. So, with that said, you've been listening to Blackbird 9's Breakfast Club. I'm your host, Frederick C. Blackburn. I'd like to thank everyone for joining us this evening. I hope everyone has a wonderful week. And until next time, I will see you all at the rendezvous.